0: A moment ago, we we went through that process of being renewed in the gospel as as God called us to himself. And we went and confessing our sin and then being renewed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, this pattern. Did you hear what we sang in response to that? Not just the theology that, that we are standing before the throne, that our surety is at God's right hand. But but as we sang, his blood atoned for every race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. So often we think of that qualitatively. We think of it as doctrine, as theology. But does it ever hit you on Sunday morning that by the time we have received our call to worship, there have been... Tens of thousands of calls to worship that started all the way back, I think, in Australia. Right? Wouldn't that be the far the the first of the time zone? Where where churches in Australia, churches in Japan, churches in the Philippines, churches in Asia, Central Asia, South. Asia, and and just moving across the globe. Think about it. With each time zone, and I'm I'm not a big enough nerd to know how many there are uh, in general, let alone how many have gone before us. But in each time zone, there have been churches throughout the globe that have already been called to worship who have gone through this process of confessing their sins and being renewed in the gospel of God's grace because the blood of Christ has atoned for every race. These aren't just words. It is a reality that has been playing itself out for hours today and will continue to play itself out as from time zone to time zone, and as people groups in America, and Central America, and South America, and then off into the Polynesian Islands, as as God is calling his people throughout the day. So exciting. Maybe you don't think about it um, as often as maybe we should, uh, but pretty cool nonetheless. If you're You are here. So I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word this morning. I get a little excited about certain things. We're going to continue to look at the Sermon on the Mount uh, as we are working, making our our way through this. Uh, We come today to Matthew uh, chapter 5, where we will be focusing in on verses 38 to 42. But I'm going to read... From a little bit earlier, something that, a text that we went over just a few weeks ago, because they are definitely connected. But before I do that, I'm going to read from Deuteronomy 19. So just listen. I know some of you like to try to turn and look at each individual text. Just listen. Just let the Word of God speak to you this morning. A single witness shall not suffice... "...against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days." The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So shall, uh, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, whoever insults. His brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us, not only revealing yourself to us in your word in ages past, but as you have been revealing yourself to your church throughout this world today, as church as after church has been called into participating in the the glorious worship that is taking place before your throne. And we thank you that you have called us to participate and that you are now speaking to us, having renewed us in your grace to renew us in living lives of devotion as expressions of thanksgiving to you. And so, Lord, help us to receive what you have to say, especially as what you have to say today is so contrary, not only to the sinful nature with which we still struggle, but the very context in which we are struggling on a daily basis. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As you recall, what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount is he is seeking to provide his people what is needed for them to be, to be his followers, to be citizens of his kingdom, and how to experience the flourishing that comes from living as one of his disciples. And the big challenge at the time in which Jesus is speaking to his people, the big challenge is that religious authorities have established uh, interpretations and applications of the Old Testament that are contrary to the intent of what God has revealed. And so what has to happen is that God's people whose moral imaginations have been captured by false teaching, they need to have their moral imaginations reformed. And in the new formation of the moral imagination that that flows from God's revelation, it brings with it a, a new set of virtues. It brings with it a new set of values. And it most certainly requires a new set of practices. Mm, Right? Not just ideas to, to believe, but a life to embody. These virtues and these values come from Jesus Christ. Not just that he is the teacher, he is the one who embodies These values. He is the one who embodies these virtues. If you're going to be a follower of Christ, Christ says, then my life is going to become your life. Not only doctrinally and theologically do we get incorporated into Christ by nature of our union with him. Jesus, through the Spirit, takes up residence within us and he starts to remake us. And as the children's catechism says, what is God doing when he's remaking us? What is God doing when he's sanctifying us? He's making me more and more holy in my, we're Presbyterians, but we can speak, in my heart and conduct. And what Jesus has been doing is working through these different interpretations and applications of the Old Testament where the Pharisees have been the blind leading the blind astray. And so Jesus is going through this series of you have heard it said. Jesus is not, is, is not correcting the Old Testament. Jesus is not trying to add to the Old Testament. Jesus is not saying that the Old Testament is, is incomplete. What he is saying is these religious authorities who, are, who have been telling you, here's what the Old Testament says, well, they're wrong. Here is what the Old Testament says. And the emphasis throughout this section is that the people of God in response to the redemption that we have received is a life of gratitude and thanksgiving that reveals itself in devotion and obedience. And the obedience to which we are called in Christ is not merely an external, just try to do the right thing or, or just try to avoid the wrong thing. It's not just external. It is internal and external where the two are becoming more and more closely tied together. The obedience to which we are called is, is this inner and the outer growing so that more and more in heart and conduct, my life is embodying the life of my Savior who dwells within me. This is what the Christian life is about. And even though the fullness of the glory of, And the inheritance that is gifted to us in Christ, though we will experience that in in the new age when it it fully uh, reveals itself, we do not have to wait until then to experience Christian flourishing. And what Jesus has been saying is we don't have to change the world around us to experience Christian flourishing. In fact, what he will reveal is that the more you and I embody his virtue and his values and his practices, that this is the kind of thing that God uses to change those around us. You see the difference? We don't have to fix everyone else in order to create an environment that makes it easy for us to follow Jesus. It is the opposite. We follow Christ because there is nothing that is more beautiful, true, or good than Him. And whatever we have to say no to, and no matter how difficult it is to say yes to Christ, Because of the superiority of the manifold perfections of his worth, right? We prayed that in the prayer of confession. Because of that, we do as God says in the first commandment. I have no other gods before him. I treasure him above everything else, no matter the cost. And so the Christian faith is about this radical new life in Jesus Christ that we have as new creatures in Jesus Christ in which, through the Spirit, Jesus Christ has taken up residence within us and he is remaking us to reflect his image. And so in heart and conduct, we are to embody Christ. Now, all of that sounds pretty good, Until Jesus reminds us that keeping the commandment, thou shalt not kill, is not simply about don't physically destroy someone's life. It goes beyond that. We can murder someone in our hearts. And we can definitely murder someone with our words. Keeping the commandment is not only simply about don't kill someone. And as long as you say, well, I've never killed someone, so therefore I've kept the commandment, Jesus is like, what about your heart? Where is that? What is your attitude towards people? Is your attitude towards them one of salt and light? Is your attitude towards them one in which you are seeking to be one who preserves life by, by killing corruption and corrosion? Is, it, are you, is the attitude of your heart one in which you are the light, where you are participating in dispelling darkness in order to illuminate God's truth, goodness, and beauty? Where are you in your heart in those things? Because in your heart, if if you have established yourself as being more important than the other, to the point that your posture towards your neighbor is that you look down your nose at him or her, Jesus says, you are breaking the commandment of not murdering. The Christian life is this radical new life of these interconnected relationships in which the newness that I have to God, the newness that I have to myself, and the newness that I have to my neighbor all coalesce and come together in which the posture of my heart and the practices of my body are becoming more and more the embodiment of Christ's virtues, values, and practices. Now, what we have today in our text is, is almost like that flip side, right? Don't murder is about not looking down your nose at the other person. It is about recognizing that both of you are equally sinful before God. It's about recognizing that both of you can be equally counted righteous in Jesus Christ. And yet, even though there is all kind of equality there, you are not to look down your nose at the other person. So that you are not supposed to be the agent of violence. Whether that violence is actual violence, physical, whether it is emotional, whether it is psychological, right? And there are several others I could go into beyond that. You are not supposed to be the agent. All right. But the question now becomes, what happens when you are the recipient of someone else's violence? You see what's happening here? You're not supposed to be the agent. Well, what if something happens to me? Well, eye for an eye. Right? Eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth. Hand for a hand. That's what I get. If you hurt me, the Bible says, Deuteronomy 19, and I can show you two other places, in Exodus and Leviticus, I for an eye, so if you come after me, I, the Bible says, I get to go after you. Now, is that what the Bible's teaching? Thank you. <laughs> I hear that testimony. No, that is not what the Bible is teaching. Is that what the Pharisees were teaching? Yes, all right. That is right. That is totally right. That is what they were teaching. Now, what Jesus says here, notice here, if someone strikes you on the right cheek with the right hand. Now, how do you do that? Is it just about getting punched? Is it simply about someone comes up and decides to punch you? Sometimes I've deserved it. I'll just be honest. But is that what's being talked about here? No, this is a backhanded slap. This way. The issue here isn't that someone you know wants to physically get in a fight with you. I mean, it could mean that, but if that's their approach, they're not very skilled or effective. This is about shaming someone. In the ancient Near East, if someone was going to to challenge your honor, right? You'd backhand someone. In the colonial period, period in America, what would you do? Anybody know? You'd have a glove. Gideon can tell you all about it afterwards. But you'd have a glove, and you'd slap the face of, of the guy, and then you'd be like, "You know, I'll see you, you know, at dawn. Choose your weapon. Right. I would say all you can eat chicken wing contest. <laughs> How about that? That would be my weapon. Right? If only if only Aaron Burr if only Hamilton had been good Christians. They would have known to reject the honor culture That led to them engaging in not only unnecessary but unbiblical violence for the sake of maintaining their honor. This is what Jesus is talking about. What do you do when someone shames you? What do you do when someone attacks you with their words? What do you do when someone attacks your good name? What do you do when someone attacks your good reputation? What do you do? Is it true that if someone goes after you like that, that you get to go after them? In Deuteronomy 19... when when what is often referred to as the lex talionis is given, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It is not saying, here is how you get to retaliate. Instead, the law is given there to try to guard against the abuse of justice. Notice that part of eye for an eye includes the idea that the testimony being given has to be given from a credible witness, and it has to be given from multiple witnesses. Can one person, think about this, think about the history that we've experienced. Can one person just make a blanket allegation against the next and and that be enough? No, the Bible says there has to be at least two or three witnesses. Doesn't mean corruption can't still happen. We've seen it happen. But what it does say is that there should be at least a guard from one person being able to just wildly accuse another. And that part of an eye for an eye in order for justice to be served is that the accuser himself or herself needs to be examined to see, is he credible? Is she credible? Or does she have an agenda? Does he have something he's trying to accomplish? And, and if they discover that the witness is not credible, then you're not supposed to move forward with the allegation. But even if the allegation is demonstrated to be proven true, does that mean the offended party, because his case was upheld, does he get to just go after the other person? No. Even the the penalty of the law is to be commiserate with the crime. Now, why is that important? For you and me, it's a little more difficult to really enter into what's happening here because we live in a society that is still loosely (laughs) connected to the Judeo-ethic law code. And and we live in a society that has, for the the most part, in varying degrees at differing times, has embraced the the civility of of what is being um that's being taught here but in the ancient near east that is not how they lived it was a it was an honor culture and so if you did something to me my honor required me to do what something to you and what did that normally look like oh well you you uh you killed my you, you killed my my ox. I don't think any of us have ever had that issue. But you killed my ox. So what am I gonna do? I'm gonna take several of yours out. What's the problem with revenge? Our sinful natures tend to escalate, don't we? If if you kill my ox, am I satisfied with killing your ox? No, because if I'm being motivated by revenge and retaliation, I have a hunger for blood. And history is replete with a series of escalations. How do countries get to the point where they're, they're at war so easily? How do families get to the point that they have generational feuds that become popularized, right, in the American mythology? How do we get to that point where people within the church who have a shared life in Jesus Christ get to where they hold grudges against one another, right? And it's not those out there, it's me. How do I get into that position? How do I get to that point where if you come after me, I'm going to burn you down, and guess what? I am really good at that. It's because... We are not embodying the restraint and the mercy of Jesus Christ, who even as he was being put to death on a cross, accused by wicked men, he cries out to his father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Can we embody that? As the followers of Jesus Christ, can we be the place in this world that can be known for not only not escalating, but de-escalating through a conscious decision of a heart posture and a practice of restraint and mercy. Now, what Jesus is also not saying here is he is not saying turn a blind eye to injustice. He is not saying don't defend yourself. And he is certainly not saying don't defend your neighbor. I don't believe personally that he's teaching pacifism here. Some believe that, and if that's your position, I certainly respect it. But I don't think that's what he's teaching. What he's teaching is don't be the one who is itching for the fight. Don't be the one that is looking to escalate matters in order to protect your own pride. But do step up in order to protect yourself or to certainly protect your, your neighbor from injustice. Jesus isn't just sitting there going, just let anything happen, it's okay, because you get to go to heaven. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is, if you're going to be a defender, what you are defending is justice. Because justice finds its origin in my heavenly Father. And injustice I have overcome as the sinless one who allowed himself to be accused as a sinner and who allowed himself to die a sinner's death. And I have been raised from these things vindicated of these things in order to give hope to my people and to give hope to a world that is ensnarled in escalation and in the protection of one's own pride. Jesus here is calling us to a devotion of heart, and conduct in which the very virtues and values and practices of Jesus Christ in serving those whom he was better than, but considering them more important than himself, took up the cross for others. And that's our calling. This is what the church should be known for. Are we taking up the cross? Are we a people of restraint? Are we a people that look to give to those who might be demanding something of us? He doesn't say here the person who is suing you because they have a legal suit against you. He's saying if someone comes after you, are you going to respond with escalating or are you going to respond with generosity? And the people of God, because of the generosity of Jesus Christ, we are to be known by restraint and mercy. Not just talking about it doctrinally, but cultivating it in the depths of our hearts so that we can practically live out a life of restraint and mercy to those who do not deserve it. But guess what? Neither do we. And yet in Christ, he has been pleased to do this for us. And in Christ, beloved, he is pleased to do it for others through you. The testimony that your neighbor will have that God is love, that God is just, that God is gracious, merciful, that 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 these things are real in a world that is enmeshed right now with violence and escalation, if they are going to see that, if they are going to know it, it's because they experience it in you. And this is the calling that we have. And so what are you cultivating in your heart are you cultivating grievances? I'm really good. That's one of my best ones, by the way. That's one of my best practices, cultivating a grievance. Are you cultivating a grievance? Are you cultivating shame? Are you cultivating the, the protection of your pride? Or are you cultivating a humility? That has entrusted yourself to Christ, so that even if you are being reviled like Christ, you do not revile in return, but instead you die for them to serve them. Isn't that the gospel from 1 Peter 2 that we read earlier in the service? And so, what are you cultivating? What are you watching? What are you reading, right? What blog sites do you go to, right? Do you turn on the news channels? What are you cultivating? What are you letting to play around in your mind and your heart? Are you doing that? Now, I'm not saying don't watch the news. I'm not saying don't read the news. I'm not saying any of that. But the stuff that you're watching and hearing and seeing Reading, experiencing, is that what defines you? Or is that you are hidden in the rock of ages, who is your and my fortress forever? What are you cultivating and how? Does does the, the values and virtues that you're cultivating, how are they working themselves out in your practices? What Jesus calls us to here is nothing less than that radical new life that we can experience true Christian flourishing within this world by having our moral imaginations reformed away from escalation and violence, and the protection of pride into giving ourselves more and more to Jesus Christ, that we might not only not be the agent of violence towards others, but that we might respond to violence towards ourselves as Jesus Christ. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are not worthy of Christ. There is nothing that we have done. There's nothing we could do. There's nothing nothing we would do that would ever obligate you to us. And yet, before the foundations of the world, you determined to obligate yourself to us. And you have sent your son to fulfill those obligations. And in Jesus Christ, not only do we not receive what what our sins deserve, we we receive a, a participation in the life of Christ. We receive a participation in the vindication of Christ. And so, Lord, help us to cultivate our rest in Christ so that we would not think that we have to vindicate ourselves, but that we can rest in your vindication, which will indeed be revealed in the fullness of its benefits and glory when Christ returns, but can even give us the comforting confidence To rest in Christ now, even as we anticipate that fullness to come. And Lord, help us as we stand more confidently in the finished work of Jesus Christ. May that free us up to be agents, not only of your mercy, but agents of your justice. As we reveal and as we show as we seek to, to, um, to help enforce proper limits, that may all of this be done, Lord, for your glory, for our good, and for the redemption of the nations. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.